Good morning. morning. And Happy New Year, everyone. Well, let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your many, many blessings. And as we uh, watch the events happening in the world around us, we can uh, become ever more eager and anticipatory of your soon return. We ask that your spirit will enlighten our minds, prepare our hearts, and guide us in the direction and how we can be an influence for your kingdom in this world. Uh, May you be with us today as we study. We can draw closer to you and fulfill your purposes in our lives. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing Lesson 3 in Isaiah, and it is entitled, When Your World is Falling Apart. (laughs) What do you all think of the title, apropos? (laughs) Yes, these are actually written more than a year in advance. Well, more than a year. I think these are actually three to five years in advance. Mm Mm-hmm. So, as I was thinking about this, I thought, well, what ways can people's world fall apart? And if you think about what constitutes a world falling apart, wouldn't it be loss of resources, supports that a person depends on for their safety, sustenance, nurturance? And so, could somebody use this script, my world's falling apart, could be used by those whose community has been destroyed in a natural disaster? Uh have lost people that are important to them who've died, have lost financial support and are homeless, have had the infrastructure of their countries destabilized, living in a war zone. Does this statement still working for all this so far? Have been kidnapped. A person who's been kidnapped, their world is falling apart. Has Someone's been falsely imprisoned. Loss of health or abilities. So while most of us have faced loss of loved ones or experienced, maybe some of us have experienced resource losses like some people have had their house burn or have lost a job or have had to go through bankruptcy, most of us still facing various losses have still had other supports to help deal with them, people or friends or family or church or somebody to help us through. Most of us haven't lost at all simultaneously at the same time. So consider Job. Just consider Job. I can't imagine. I really can't imagine. But simultaneously lost his finances, not just his excess wealth. He lost daily sustaining Income, if you want to put it that way. Uh, and he had 10 children die. 10. Uh, parents, put your mind around that. Sign, at, at once, in the same fail swoop. And he had multiple friends and employees, people that have worked for him, uh, stewards and stuff for years were killed and died. And he lost his health and was suffering in terrible pain. And then his friends turned up and told him it was his fault because he had some sin in his life and he's a sinner and God's punishing him for it. If he just confessed, it could get right. And then his wife said, what's the point in living anyway? Just give up and die. Just just let that percolate for a minute. Talk about your world falling apart. Job's world fell apart, didn't it? Why do you think, and the question, and we're not going to spend it, but the question for today is, why didn't Job lose it? Do you think you would have held it together as well as Job? He grieved, but he didn't. Do we see Job becoming suicidal? 
In fact, we see evidence he was exactly the opposite. No, his wife encouraged, but no. Mm-mm. Do we see him going off into a drunken rampage? Become despondent and hopeless? We don't see any of that. Why? Why didn't Job lose it? Trust in God. So you all said trust in God. So you're suggesting Job had one support left, one lifeline, his connection with God, his knowledge, connection, trust, love in God, was able to give him stability in the face of everything else. He did have three friends that he could talk with. They didn't necessarily agree with him, but there was conversation, evidently. Yeah, but we, we, just, we just evaluated those three friends. Those three friends were removing stress or adding stress by telling him it's his fault, he's a sinner, he's done something wrong. Uh, I, I'll tell you a true story that I heard about. A, 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 parent, uh, a couple had uh, a, uh, a, a child, I think four or five-year-old child, went, uh, uh, and this was an Adventist family, uh, went to a neighbor's house for a, a neighbor's uh, birthday party on Sabbath afternoon. And their four-year-old child drowned on Sabbath afternoon at that party in that neighbor's pool. And their Adventist co-workers, they work for an Adventist organization, told them that it was because they broke the Sabbath. If they didn't break the Sabbath, that child wouldn't have drowned, that God was punishing them for not obeying the Sabbath. Do you think their friends at work helped them by telling them that? No. Okay, so that's Job's friends. Okay, I just want to bring it home. So, yes, they were there. They sat with him. But but I'm going to suggest to you they weren't actually supportive of him. They were undermining of him. Yes. It was his lifeline. To God, right. So and, he, and because of that, our, that um, vision that Ellen White said, we're going to go through the same thing if we're alive at the end. Where the only thing that we've got to hang on to was that rope and nothing else. That's why we're looking. As our, we're feeling stress in the world today. I want us to draw this. What Job had this connection with God. Did Job know why the tragedies were happening no. to him? No, but he knew God. But he knew God. Yes, he did. He didn't know God. That's yes. the difference. Yes, exactly right. Did Job deserve what happened to him? No. So suffering and pain, let's just, just be very clear. Suffering and pain in this world sometimes happens for the following reasons. Sometimes it happens because of our own sinful choices, gambling and financial problems, uh, promiscuity and various diseases or health problems. Uh, we can bring pain and suffering on ourselves by known, willful, purposeful, destructive choices. We could do that. That's one reason. Was that Job's? No. Uh, here's another reason. M- misunderstanding or ignorance. Uh, people who innocently don't understand healthy food choices and they just eat junk food and fast food and they're raised in an inner city or poorly educated and they don't understand nutrition and they're not trying to be unhealthy. They just eat badly and they have health problems. They can have suffer because of that. So out of ignorance. Was this Job's problem? He was doing something bad to himself ignorantly. No, No, it wasn't his problem. Uh, Then there's accidents. Uh, motor vehicle accidents, for instance, things, um, nobody's choosing an evil thing. Just, it just ice and slip and poop. Is this why? Is this an accident? Is this why Job's suffering? No, it's not. Um, God disciplining. The Bible says God disciplines those he loves. Is this Job's case? Job needed discipline. No, he's perfect and righteous in all his ways. I'm just pointing out lots of reasons pain and suffering can happen in this world. None of these are applying to Job. There's, there's one left. 
There's one left. Evil forces causing pain and suffering upon others. There's another reason why suffering happens in this world. And in this particular case, human and demonic forces were involved in bringing pain and suffering upon Job. Okay? So here's the next question. But why would God allow it? If God's all-powerful, if Job is obedient to God, if he's perfect and righteous in all his ways, if he's living in harmony with God's plans, purposes, designs, why wouldn't God protect him? Because God knew Job. God knew the trend of his life. He knew his heart. He knew where Job was going. Okay. So so you're saying if we have a good relation with God, that means God will um, protect us less? No. So, so yes, God knew Job. Job knew God. Why didn't God protect him? Let's do it an example. For the universe, not for the world, not, not for us, not for Earth, but for the world. I think it was important that God showed the other worlds, the other universes, how he did have faithful people in this Earth that still loved and trusted him. So, so the idea of Job being called to the witness stand of the universe to confirm that God's reading of Job's heart when Satan says, hey, uh, uh, all the sons of God have gathered around, and Satan comes walking to and fro on the earth. God says, where are you? I've come from the earth. Imply, I'm here representing earth. I'm the voice of earth's intelligences here in your heavenly council. And God says, whoa, not so fast. You, no, no, you don't represent earth. Have you forgotten about Job over there? He's perfect and righteous in all his ways. He does not recognize your leadership. You have no voice in this council. So this idea that Satan turns and goes, ah, no, he's really on my side. He just has figured out how well you pay. And so he's, he's putting on, the, uh, he's putting on the, the scam, the pretense, the, the facade uh, to get you to pay him well. But we all know he's really on my side. So this idea that angels and these intelligences can't read hearts and minds. And so... When, when Satan makes this allegation, God could declare, no, he's really on my side. But the only way to prove whose side he's really on is to allow Satan to prove his case. So he does. Notice when God removed his, his hand, his restraining hand, Satan was not restricted to do evil. But he wasn't restricted to harm him. Satan could have blessed him. Remember, remember when Satan took Jesus to the Temple Mount and said, I, all these kingdoms, I'll give them all to you if you'll just worship me. He, he could have had all the kings of the earth declare Job king and, and have him become more wealthy and more powerful. Satan, he just, God, that's just, you just can't kill him. Do anything else you want to him. God didn't say, I'll let you harm him. You can hurt him. He said, do whatever you want, basically. Hands are off. I won't put a hedge of protection around. Do what you want. Have you ever considered God has put a hedge of protection around you to keep Satan from giving you more wealth? <laughs> yeah, those long yes. tickets. Yeah. yeah, have you ever considered that? Yes. Uh huh. Or is it only to get me, keep keep somebody from hurting me? Um, I just I just thought of that. But no, seriously, Satan could have blessed him with more wealth, couldn't he have? Yes. Okay. So the point is, Satan reveals his character as the as the as the destroyer, the inflictor of pain and suffering to the other worlds, also to the other worlds, also. Okay. So there's a. So why didn't God protect him? You've got a kind of a storyline view, but how do y'all like that story? We're pawns on a chessboard. 
It's bothered me. God has made a move. Satan's made a counter move. And he's going to sacrifice the pawn to save the king. This is how a lot of people interpret what I just said. Is that the reason? Is that what's going on? Is that we're pawns on a chessboard? Shoves pawn Job out there, sacrifices the pawn Job to protect God the king. That's kind of the argument, isn't it? Come on. <laughs> if you don't know God, we're ambassadors. Okay, so if you, do, if you know God, why is that not going to work? Because you trust him. But why do you trust him? Because you know him. Yeah. I read the story of Job. Okay. <laughs> and you learn from that, and all the stories that are in the Bible, you learn from that of how God deals with us in our life. We have the experimental knowledge of everyday learning how he's dealing with us in our life. So I know there's going to be circumstances that come up that I'm not going to know why we're going through. I have in my So you might be that pawn. I don't know it, but I know it. I know it. I know, I know. I'm going to trust him anyway. Okay. I'm going to trust him. I don't know that the word pawn fits, but Job still had a choice. He could still choose. He he could choose he could choose for his kids not to die? That was No, he could He could uh, choose how he, he reacted was, uh, to it. That's right. Okay. I like where you're going with that. So what's the question I typically ask in here nobody's asked here so far today? Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. So step back. What law? Now, what? And, and answer the question. Why would God allow this to happen? What kind of law does God run his universe on? Imposed rules. See, chessboard is imposed rules. It's arbitrary. Okay, just made up rules, and you have to adhere to those rules or to cheat. You see, well, even a chess analogy, I think it holds up because if you if you understand chess, that well, first of all, the pawn wasn't sacrificed; the pawn was imperiled, but it wasn't sacrificed. A pawn can become a king. Correctly moved on the chessboard, a pawn can become a king. Okay, so so you go ahead and make the case why chess is a good analogy. No, no, I say I'm not saying it is a good or bad analogy. I just think, I just don't think it I don't think it breaks down. I don't think I reject the premise that the pawn was sacrificed. For those who would make the argument, Job was a pawn and he was sacrificed. I don't think he was sacrificed. Uh, yeah, so he was moved. Okay. Well, that's because Job didn't die. So you're right, he wasn't sacrificed. Okay. Job did not die. So he in that in that strict language, he wasn't sacrificed. Job was um Imperiled. Job, Job's suffering was for the benefit of the king. Okay, yeah, I don't, I don't buy that argument. Yeah, but that was the argument that was made the, to show the goodness of God, to show that, and all these evidences to be, come to the witness stand of the universe and say, "Out of God is right." This argument is made, so it was for God's benefit that Job was imperiled or suffered. That, that, that's the idea. But back to, let, let's not get off on that. He just, he just derailed us. Okay. Stick with the question. This is the point. This is the point that will bring it home. We could spend 20 minutes on this and still be, have to come back. The point is law lens. By the way, chess is complete arbitrary. Yes. It's no, all made up rules. Argue that either. Okay. But law lens, what kind of law does God run his universe on? Okay, and and if that's the case, the question is, why would God allow this to happen? Ah, freedom. What, and, and how does that play into this? Lucifer had freedom. Can love exist without freedom? No. Is God love? Yes. Okay. Would you protect your children from their own selves 
by injecting them with nanochips that you could program with your computer to control how they behave and to make sure that they walk into your house three times a day and say, Mommy, Daddy, I love you. And sure enough, every time you pro- I love you, would you do it to your children and protect them? Because as soon as you do that, what have you just done? You've destroyed individuality. You've turned them to robots. They can never love you. So even if you had children who you knew were, were, were going to rebel, they were at, you, you saw them uh, with your own eyes experimenting with drugs, marijuana, whatever, would you then inject them with the nanochips and programs to never do it again? Okay. So the point here is, was Job God's only child in the story? Or is every human being or angel being also one of God's children? Does, does he only love the, the, the righteous ones or does he also love the wicked ones? Okay. So he won't make them robots. Number one. Why does God let it happen? Because it's the only way God wins. And we're going to expand on that more. You had a hand. It was a hand right there. Your uh, nanochip analogy, uh, don't we often do that anyway, using guilt of religion, for instance? We try to train our children to do what is arbitrarily correct in our view, and we lose the relationship with them, and they turn into rebels. There's a time and place for children to have rules that they don't understand that are enforced simply because of the authority of the parent. There's a time and place for that. But if we don't... Um, Educate them at the earliest possible moment to the higher reasons so that the rules become irrelevant. Uh, just think about in, our, in every one of our lives why we still brush our teeth today. I know there was a time and place, I remember, I have memories, where the only reason I brushed my teeth was because my m- mother inspected my toothbrush, <laughs> okay? And I would be punished if I didn't. There was no part of me that wanted to brush my teeth at an early age. I remember this. But as I've gotten older... That rule became completely, it just evaporated. There's no rule. Even though there was a rule, there's no rule. I want to do it because I understand the second law. If we don't grow like that in everything that the Lord asks us to do or our parents ask us to do, if it always remains rule enforcement, then you're right. It leads to rebellion because liberty is being violated. That's right. Good point. So, number one. Oh, yes, go ahead. I'm reminded of Second Corinthians 3, 17, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. That's right. Love only exists. The spirit of force on the other end is the spirit of Satan or the spirit of Rome. Okay, so so one, love only exists in freedom. Violate freedom, destroy love, incite rebellion. Next, what kind of God would God be if he actually used those methods? Would he be a God we could love and trust? Everybody said, I trust him, I trust him, I trust him. Would you trust him if he used those methods? No. 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 Okay. Uh, but there's another reason, a reason beyond simply the innocent like Job's suffering, or uh, and beyond the onlooking universe. We are... Go ahead, Wendell. Can we go back to a month before Satan showed up? Go ahead and make your point. Well, I just question. What was happening with Job and God and protection or whatever a month before the, the council when, when Satan showed up and said, okay, you know... This is unfair, or whatever. Don't we? Don't we know that? I don't think everyone does. But the implication of the whole story is there's there's been a hedge of protection around Job his whole life. Right. It's always there because he's faithful. God protects him until this moment. So, what's the point of going back a month? What are we trying to imply? 
Many people believe there is a false hedge of protection around whomever. I don't think there is a, a hedge of protection around people. I think God intervenes, but not. He doesn't. He doesn't, if if we say God has laws that He works under and we work under and everything else, there is not a external hedge of protection that's around everybody, like only the righteous or only the wicked or or whatever. Okay, you've taken us in a new direction, and I'm going to have to disagree with you. Um, Jesus said that uh, the angels, uh, the guardian angels of the children are always viewing God's face, and so we have angel protectors that follow us and are with us our entire life, and the moment we're born, uh, God uh, uh, intervenes in multiple circumstances and places uh, for people who, in innocence and ignorance, as long as uh, it's working ultimately for the greater good of the individual, and the larger landscape of God's plan that we can't always see. So sometimes it appears to us like some harm happened and God didn't protect, but that very action was actually for the good either of the person or for some greater good that that consequence to that person would have on a rippling effect through the community. So I, I, I disagree with the premise. I think that I think it's absolutely true. God has a protective edge around his righteous, and he's constantly intervening to um, orchestrate events but he doesn't stop bad events happen, but he brings good out of those bad events constantly as part of his protective hedge. So it depends on how you understand the hedge works. If you think it's like an, a force shield, then I would agree. We don't have a force bubble around us, but we have God's sovereignty and, and wisdom overseeing the events in our life, constantly working for our good. Ellen White actually writes that if we could sit in heaven and see the landscape of our life from the beginning to end as God sees it, we would not choose one thing different for our life than God has chosen for us. So, so I'm going to have to reject that. No, we're, I've got to move on. Okay, what? The angel of the Lord encamps around those that fear God. Yeah. So. Yeah, I'm proving your point. Okay. So, so, so back to the point. There's another reason why, um, besides just the innocent suffering or the onlooking universe, and that is we live in a war zone. But what type of war? Primarily, is this primarily a war? While Satan uses physical might, has evil people attack, like in the book of Job. Is this really a war over might? God, no, it's not a war over might. It's over hearts and minds. Trust and love versus fear and selfishness. How does love and trust win that kind of war? Can love and trust win by threats, intimidation, force, violence? Can we win by any of those? Can love and trust win by that? No. No. So... Does God love every person on earth? Yes, that's a rhetorical question. Does God want to reach all people? Yes, another rhetorical question. So will he need people to reveal his character of love to those who don't know his character of love? Is that revelation didactic only, lecture only, words only, or is that revelation to be lived out? Do we see that in the story of Saul holding the coats when, when Stephen's being stoned? Did Stephen's loving, gracious forgiveness of those convict Saul? So God permitted the events to happen to Stephen because he saw the consequential rippling effect Stephen's stoning was going to have on spreading the gospel to the whole world. Was he protecting Stephen? Well, heaven opened up and he saw Jesus at the right hand of the Father. So in the larger landscape, yes. In the immediate action, no. 
So I want to suggest God is waiting for people today on earth to be settled, to be sealed, who are so settled into the truth they can't be moved. And he's waiting for people who will love their enemies and pray for those who spitefully use them, who will turn the other cheek, who will defeat the methods of Satan with the methods of God. We'll defeat lies with truth, selfishness with love, injustice with forgiveness, violence with gentleness and peace, cruelty with kindness, and we will turn to God and not the state for fixing problems, for deliverance. We'll trust God and we won't trust ourselves with how it turns out. We'll align with the kingdom of heaven and his design law methods and not the kingdom of world with its imperial coercive methods. So we are in the final days of the last days. I'm just going to tell you, we're in, events are going to progress very rapidly and, and things on earth are going to get much worse. And as people become more frightened, fearful, they become more controlling. When fear goes up, people want to control more to make themselves feel safe. That's what, that's what the human heart does. In relationships, I fear I'm going to lose this person I love, and the immature then begins to try to control the relationship, control the person. Okay? As they get more controlling, liberties are undermined. As liberties are taken away, love is damaged. Individuality is eroded for those who stay. Fear increases. Survival drives become stronger. And others, particularly those who don't agree, are seen as threats to be avoided or eliminated. Love grows cold, as Jesus said then. The love of many will grow cold. Society fragments. Some one or some group needs to be blamed. It's their fault. They're disobedient. They won't follow the rules. And eventually, if you believe what the Bible teaches and what Ellen White wrote, it's the people of God are going to be the ones that are going to be blamed. Even our constitutional protections in this country will be taken away, are being taken away. I'm just telling you, are being taken away. Did you know this past week, this past week, right after Christmas Eve, uh, a church, uh, two churches in Arizona were fined $10,000 for having a Christmas Eve service. And the governor of Arizona called the pastors and the churches selfish for having a Christmas Eve service. Now think about this very carefully. The U.S. Constitution protects freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech. Yet, uh, and there's nothing in the, in the Constitution uh, that gives the states the powers to restrict Religious practice in the way that's been restricted. Yet it's happening. The Christmas Eve, understand the Christmas Eve services held by the church were not mandatory for their members. There was no pressure placed. No, if you don't come to this service, we're going to disfellowship you from our church. No, there was no pressure placed. This was all voluntary. Any church member who wanted to stay home for personal safety reasons were free to do so without reprisal. It was simply offering the service for those who wanted to come to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And then think about that. The governor calls a celebration of Christ's incarnation selfish. Interesting. Some may think that this is about COVID. This is not about COVID, folks. 
This is about the great controversy. Wake up. See what's happening between God and Satan. It's an erosion of liberty. It is about forming a beastly system of revelation, globalism, a global coalition of governments and corporations and religious practices uh, organizing to, to force and coerce others. Now, let's just go back, imaginary. Let's go back. Imagine we could go back to the fall of 2019. Just pretend for a minute nobody's heard of COVID-19. Let's just pretend. Okay, I know it's hard. Use your imagination. And I were to say to you, can you imagine in the United States that something could happen in the next year where many Christians and Adventists would support the government in restricting the practice, the religious practice of our church? How many of you would support the government in closing churches down? How many think the Adventist church will support that? Do you realize they would laugh at me? Nobody. No way. Do you understand that's exactly what's happened? See it for what it is. How easily. And I will tell you, I will get hate mail. I get Every time I say this, I get hate mail. Are you wanting to kill people? No, I'm not wanting to kill people. Are you thinking COVID's not real? No, I think COVID's very real. That's not the point. The point is, what will it, what will the devil need to do to you to get you to think it's righteous to restrict someone else's religious liberty? Yes. And evidently, he didn't have to do much. Yeah, really. By nine. Uh, Don't get me started. (laughs) (laughs) Does anyone doubt why we need to pray for ISAV? Yes. So how do we war against this? Truth, that's what we try to do here, in love, which means I leave people free to see it different. I promise you, I will not come. All you people who think it's, that, that I'm wrong here, I won't come to your states and try to get laws passed that will force you to come here and sit in my class. I won't try and do that. You are free, free. This is what, what the common reason is all about. This is God's principle. Present truth. I leave you free to re- disagree, free to do it a different way. It's okay. Why do you feel it's so righteous to try to let everybody else to do it your way? That's the beastly way. So this is how we do it. We, we present truth and love. We leave people free. We will not use the methods of violence. We will not use the methods of deceit or coercion. We will not be marked in our minds or foreheads with the beastly methods because we won't accept and practice them. We won't be marked in our hands with the beastly methods because we won't go along with them. And we won't use them on others. We will be sealed of God with truth, love, and freedom. Now let's talk, boy, let's talk about resilience. Because we're talking about Job. We're talking about when your world is falling apart. Resilience is the ability to face crisis, trauma, stressors, losses, and overcome and bounce back and make it through. To do that is known as resilience. And much research has been done on resilience. And what are the factors that enhance? Some people are more resilient than others. They bounce through easier. And what are the factors that enhance? Well, actually, this includes the genes that you inherit, that we inherit. In fact, a variety of different genes have been identified that if you have a single gene polymorphism, what's a single gene polymorphism? That is when you have a single letter substitution in the gene. So, for instance, uh, if you understand genes or sequences of, uh, of information, just like letters L-O-V-E, okay, those are four letters put together, spell a word, called love, that communicates an idea or a concept, okay? Genes are letters or pieces of uh, biological material that, that coded together form information or code, 
Okay, so if you if you substitute one one letter L O V E, you take the O out and you put an I in. Now you have L I V E. That's a readable word. It's just not love. It's a new word. That's a single gene polymorphism. Okay. A, mute, a single point mutation. One little letter got changed in the gene, and it reads differently now. Okay, there are multiple genes that have had this happen to them, and depending on which version you get of the gene, so there's different versions. There's the love version, there's the live version, depending on which gene you get. Okay, and some people there's a variety of different genes that if you have one set of genes and you go through trauma you have much higher rates of PTSD and less resilience and worse physical and mental health than if you have a different set of genes go through the same trauma, you actually bounce back better or you're more resilient to the trauma. Okay? Which set of genes do you want? The one that's more resilient to the trauma? Only if you go through trauma, as a child particularly, as a child. Child traumas we're talking about right now, like sexual abuse, physical abuse, neglect. So those same set of genes, if you reverse them, okay, and you have a nurturing environment, because the genes are actually not coding for whether you get PTSD or not PTSD. They're coding for how sensitive you are to the environment. So if you have a set of genes and you're very sensitive to the environment and you have a traumatic environment and you have the sensitive genes, then you're more likely to get PTSD and bad outcomes. If you have the less sensitive genes, you're you. It's kind of like the the you have headphones on, so the noise isn't as loud. You're more resistant to the damaging effects if you have the other genes, metaphorically speaking. So you're less likely to get trauma if you're in a trauma environment as a child, PTSD. Okay, but if you have nurturing homes, loving, structured, godly, nurturing homes, it's the children with the sensitive genes that, as adults, have more resilience than the ones with the insensitive genes. They'll have less resilience than the children with the sensitive genes if they have a loving, nurturing home. So it's not just the genes. It's the genes and the home working together to determine ultimately the outcome. Isn't that interesting? Well, this is exactly how God made us. Why do we have the single gene polymorphisms? If you understand design law, we have the single gene polymorphisms because Adam and Eve broke their connection with God. And the second law of thermodynamics, if you don't put energy into a system, it slowly decays over time. Our genome is slowly decaying over time because we don't live in a face-to-face relation with God with his life-giving energy flowing in, maintaining everything in its perfection. So we're decaying. That's why the genes are... And and why is it that we we can pass this along? Because we have children in our image. So one, one factor that gives resilience to the genes you have, and the second factor will be the, the home environment in which you're raised. Well, epigenetic markers. That's not the, just the sequence of genes. The epigenetic markers are the molecules that set on the genes, telling your genes which ones to turn on and which ones to turn off. So if you think about your entire genome, all your chromosomes would be like a, a, the, a, a massive library. You go into a big library, and you look in the library, and you look at all these volumes of information in there, all these books, all these textbooks, okay? That's, you, you, that's like walking into your genome, to your chromosomes, all this information, okay? Well, what do I need? Well, in this particular cell, I need those 17 books, but that's a heart cell. My bone cells, I need those books, okay? So in all the different cells of your body, the, the, the entire library is in the DNA, but the different cells select the, the library information those cells need 
to be able to be the cell it needs to be. Well, we can also alter that based on life experiences, turn genes on, turn genes off, based on foods we eat, uh, um, God we worship, things we watch on TV, alter gene expression. And then we pass along not just the sequences, we pass along epigenetic markers so that our children are born with the books open or closed that we decided to open and close by our life experiences. So we can pass on advantages or disadvantages. Resilience, this alters brain function. So a child, let's say, let's say a mother's highly stressed and this, and this happens, uh, in our own life before we even become pregnant. Okay. It happens during pregnancy. What the mother goes through alters gene expression and developing fetal brain, conferring resilience or undermining resilience. This happens. So food choices during pregnancy alters it. Lots of examples on this. So one of the founders of the SDA church wrote over 100 years ago, before DNA was discovered scientifically. This is out of uh, Mind, Character, Personality, Volume 1, page 138. What the parents are, to a great extent, the children will be. The physical condition of the parents, their dispositions and appetites, their mental and moral tendencies are to a great greater or less degree reproducing their children. This is uh, how God designed us. God gave Adam and Eve the ability to procreate children in whose image? Their image. So as you become, you will pass on your image into your children, and it will merge with the image of your spouse. Here's another quote from Mind Character Personality 139. The nobler aims and the higher, the nobler the aims and the higher the mental and spiritual endowments, and the better developed the physical powers of the parents, the better will be the life equipment they give their children. Not powers, equipment. The children have to develop their powers, but they start with better equipment. Keep going with the quote. In cultivating that which is best in themselves, parents are exerting an influence to mold society and uplift future generations. Through the indulgence of appetite and passion, their energies are wasted, and millions are ruined for this world and for the world to come. Parents should remember that their children must encounter these temptations. Even before the birth of the child, the preparation should begin that will enable it to fight successfully the battle against evil. Especially does the responsibility rest upon the mother. She, is, she by whose lifeblood the child is nourished and its physical frame built up, imparts to it also mental and spiritual influences that tend to the shaping of the mind and character. This is absolutely proven true. Not just the gene sequences, but the epigenetic markers and brain development are significantly impacted in utero. If a mother's highly stressed during pregnancy, so, so and it may not be her fault, it may be that uh, during pregnancy her husband gets shipped off to war and gets killed in combat. That's going to be a high-stress situation for her. But if she's highly stressed, her glucocorticoid stress hormones rise, and that crosses into the fetal brain, altering brain development epigenetically so the child is born with upregulated fear circuits that impair further, uh, so the child is more socially impaired, more anxious than the child would have been as a starting point. But, so genes that we inherit, and by the way, this is scriptural, we pass on to our children, three and four generations down, that's epigenetics, okay? Those markers stay for three and four generations. So it's not just our kids, it's our grandkids and our great-grandkids that are affected as well. Okay? So that's our starting point. But what about afterbirth? Early childhood experiences alter the developing brain. A loving, emotionally responsive, consistent, and reliable 
uh, parents in the early childhood have an epigenetic and brain development that's very positive and confer resilience because the positive impact helps calm the fear circuits and develop the higher cortical circuits. It fosters learning and adaptation and expectation of hope and the development of skills and the ability to problem solve, uh, ability to calm oneself and self-soothe, uh, form new and secure attachments, sustain main and maintain friendships, form realis- realistic sense of self and, and self-mastery and self-confidence. All this is built in by nurturing, loving early childhood experiences, which confer resilience later in life. When childhood is stressful, abusive, exploitive, neglectful, chaotic, then the fear circuits overdevelop. It undermines prefrontal cortex development. They have uh, internalization of distortions about self. They don't have hope. They anticipate exploitation. They become increasingly self-centered. They have poor attachments, poor relationships, increasing inflammatory factors, diminished neuroplasticity, uh, and uh, less resilience later in life. They get overwhelmed very easily, and life stressors they collapse under with depression and mental health problems are turning to substances. So resilience is under mind do you see why jesus said woe to those who would harm the little children amen or the widows research shows that uh, social rejection isolation and loneliness isolation social isolation yeah activates the brain stress pathways increasing inflammatory factors diminishing immune response increasing your vulnerability to viral infections okay cancer uh, and make you less resilient in life. Positive social connections calm the amygdala, reduces inflammatory cascades, improves gene expression, improves immune response, makes you more capable of fighting infections, reduces your risk of cancer. So um, positive social cues are enhanced by seeing each other's faces to where masks cause a sense of social isolation. In fact, in the military... Um, the uh, as a military psychiatrist, I uh, was trained to deal with combat stress. Do you know what environment, military environment, combat environment, causes the highest likelihood of psychiatric casualties, which are markedly, uh, exponentially more than physical casualties? In other words, not a bullet wound or a fragment wound, but psychiatric. You know what the environment that is? It's the nuclear, biological, or chemical warfare environment where you have to wear a mask. And when you put that mask on, it gives you a greater sense of isolation from your squad, your brothers. You look across and in stressful situations, you see without the mask, you see your friend and he just smiles. He just gives you that, that look, it's going to be okay. You can feel the connection and it encourages you. You're not alone out there. But you put the mask on, you lose a lot. It's very, very damaging. Psychiatrists on the news and stuff saying this. <laughs> because it's not politically correct for people to be informed with the truth. Okay? There is an agenda out there. There is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The lion's roar does not hurt. The lion's roar incites fear. He's roaring. The whole message of Satan's kingdoms. And remember, he showed all the kingdoms of the world to Jesus, and they were all his. They weren't the kingdom of my, my kingdom is not of this world, Jesus said. All the kingdoms of the world are Satan's. There is not a kingdom on this earth that is God's, except the kingdom of heaven is where? Within you. 
The only place you find the kingdom of heaven is in the hearts and minds on earth today is in the hearts and minds of those who live God's kingdom of love, the law written on the heart and mind. You will not find a government on earth that is the kingdom of God. It's not here. It's a big deception. And so the the kingdoms of the world are orchestrating to form the coalition that will get the righteous. Understand the real goal here, folks. Satan actually doesn't want the righteous simply killed while they're righteous. He loses them. If you die while you're righteous, like Stephen, Stephen's still connected with God. Stephen's eternally saved. Satan wants to get us to choose to sever our connection with God. How does he do that? By inciting fear and getting us to believe it's righteous to embrace his methods to pursue a righteous goal. I mean, is it righteous to want to save lives? Of course it is. That's a righteous goal. Let's do it by using beastly methods. And that's how people get duped. Look at, look at, look at any historic, most historic. There are always the, the, the true malevolence that know they're doing evil, but the vast majority that participate. Do you think most of the soldiers who went to the crusades the, from the Christian lands down into Jerusalem and Israel to go to war and kill people, do you think most of those peasants who became soldiers actually thought they were doing evil? Or do you think they were duped into believing that they were going to secure eternal salvation and forgiveness of their sins by going down there and killing people? Okay, these people were not malevolent. They were innocents being duped and deceived to use destructive methods to pursue a righteous goal. Salvation, righteous goal but completely duped. Other factors that can increase resilience include things like physical health, healthy diet, regular sleep, physical exercise, education. The more educated and more you understand how reality works, it gives you resilience, resilience cognitive training, um, spiritual development, healthy relationship with God. Job, healthy relation with God. So the relation with God was a God he could reason with. Not a God he had to cower in fear of. Notice that perspective, that framework he lived in. I don't know what's happening, but I know I serve a God that if I could have an audience with him, he would hear me fairly and would give me an answer. It's God he could reason with. It's God he longed to reason with. That's my point. Okay, not that not the gods of the world uh, that that thunder and you better not ask questions or you'll get punished. So healthy spirituality confers resilience in a multitude of ways, develops your higher cortex, calms your fear circuits. When your higher cortex is developed, it's nor- well, even when you're not just thinking about something to problem solve, just developed. Its normal function sends a calming tone. It's an inhibitory, just constant calming tone down through your fear circuit. You have less fear and you're less anxious if you've got to develop prefrontal cortex function. And that's not just being able to problem solve. It's also part of your prefrontal cortex is altruism. A love relationship with a God that you trust, that's part of your prefrontal cortex. That's where you're sealed in your forehead. And people have more love, they have less fear. That's exactly right. But healthy spirituality have better self-care. So this is the temple of the spirit. So we care of it. We don't abuse it. So we have better physical health. Um, we are more likely to forgive rather than grudge hold. And grudge holding causes disruption of your salience network, which causes looping and, and fear and anger, which causes more inflammatory cascades. More likely to engage in altruism of helping others. That also activates love circuits and calms fear circuits. 
more likely to have a connection with a God that you can trust with the outcomes and you have hope for deliverance. So a healthy religious experience can promote that. But on the other hand, a religious experience that's not can promote the other way. That's right. That's right. So, boy, I, do you want me to continue on with this kind of information? Move on to the stuff about Ahaz. No, this is no. Okay. <laughs> Before we move on away from genetics, just for my parents and, and people who are on who are listening to you with that, um, I think you need to go back to the original statement about why bad things happen. Bad things happen because we make mistakes. Bad things happen because we unintentionally make mistakes, and because there's accidents. And so, genetic issues with our children do not necessarily fall on our shoulders. No. Who said this man was born blind? Him or his parents? Neither. Okay. No. So, so those types of things could be, for instance, fetal alcohol syndrome. Okay. I mean, clearly the woman drank her entire pregnancy and caused serious damage to the developing brain. That, that's what that is. It's on her. Okay. Um, teens. Teens that abuse themselves with drugs. That's my body. I can do what I want. Well, actually, you will not only be harming yourself, you will alter your gene expression, and you will pass on to your children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren disadvantages. That's, that's just true. But that doesn't mean a child born with a problem was directly caused by some past indiscretion. We know we can do that. It doesn't mean every problem can be traced back to that, though, because we have gene defects, and there's a difference between sequencing defects um, and epigenetic defects. Epigenetic are the instructions telling what to turn on and what to turn off. Sequencing defects, these are mutations. And there's no evidence that our lifestyle causes the mutations except for um, radiation. So if you do something to irradiate yourself, you can cause mutations. Okay, But, but, the, uh, but, but the abuses of diet and lifestyle, those are epigenetic changes. And they knock off three to four generations down. So the sins carry down three to four generations. Okay? And be reversed to a large degree in many instances. The epigenetic changes absolutely are reversible, but typically not in one generation. Uh, uh, the studies show that uh, the damaging effects, if you have a healthy environment, will remove some of the epigenetic markers in that first generation, but not all of them. Okay, but it does reverse it some. Yes, so the good good influences are, are redemptive. So um, adaptive ways of coping with stress. Being truthful, dealing with reality, standing your ground, confronting and uh, problems and problem solving, seeking help when help's appropriate to be sought. Prayer, prayer and seeking God's wisdom and guidance and applying his principles. Maintaining your healthy routines of diet, exercise, sleep. These are adaptive coping mechanisms. Music, humor, reframing. Finding meaning or purpose in the experience is very adaptive. Maladaptive ways of coping. Fleeing or escaping to avoid the feeling or the problem through denial or distortion or externalization. It wasn't me. I deserved it. It wasn't that, whatever. I didn't deserve Substances, fleeing through substances, alcohol, drugs, prescription medications. Fleeing through excessive sleep. Not normal routine sleep. Excessive. I have patients that, that when they're stressed, they have problems they don't want to deal with, they'd rather dream so they stay in bed and they... And they excessively sleep to avoid life. Entertainment. Oh, how many people are fleeing into the entertainment of various kinds of games, the, the fantasy games, 
uh, physically running away, fleeing their circumstances, fleeing your community, fleeing your problems, attacking others or blaming others. It's their fault. Seeking to control others or make others feel your pain or your suffering, making them suffer the way you've suffered. Becoming helpless, disengaging, surrendering, giving up. Yelling, screaming, self-harm of various kinds. These are all maladaptive ways of coping with stress. As we consider God's methods and principles versus the methods of the enemies, uh, Satan, uh, how would you describe the differences and how those differences impact us? Does our understanding of reality make a difference? If we view the, the same stressful events, a hurricane destroys a city. Through design law versus through imposed law, do we see what's happening differently? Does that make a difference in how we understand it and how we cope with it? If we have imposed law of you, for instance, do we go on TV and say, God was punishing that wicked city for their immoral behavior? Sin has to be punished, you know. So on Sabbath lesson, we're just getting to it, and we're one minute over already. One Sabbath, Connie and Roy drove into their driveway after church. Bantam hen flew frantically across the yard in front of them. Something was wrong. The pet birds were supposed to be safely in their pen, but one had gotten out. Quick investigation showed a tragedy in progress. Beethoven, the neighbor's small dog, also had escaped her yard and was down by the pond with Daisy in her, in her mouth. Daisy, a beautiful laying hen with fluffy white tail feathers, uh, Connie rescued Daisy, but it was too late. Her precious pet, now with a mangled neck, soon died in Connie's arm. She sat down in the yard, holding the dead bird, and wailed. Another pet was deeply disturbed. The tall white duck by the name of Waddlesworth saw Connie holding Daisy and seemed to have assumed she had killed her. So for the next few weeks, whenever Waddlesworth saw Daisy, he would viciously attack her, pinching her painfully with his strong bill. Sometimes it's hard to sort out who your friends and enemies are. Well, I found this very interesting, actually. How many people are just like this duck? <laughs> Seeing though they do not see. They saw. She, the duck saw the dead uh, other animal in Connie's arms. I saw it. Saw it. Thought they knew what was going on. I watched uh, recently. I got my hair cut in the... TV was on Gunsmoke. <laughs> and in the old Gunsmoke episode, there was a man choking to death. And the doctor ran in and attempted to do a tracheotomy. Now, I don't know if that was actual medical science back at the era of Gunsmoke or not. But in the TV episode, it was uh, portrayed, okay? And the several family members came in and saw him cutting on the man's throat. But the man died anyway. So they arrested the doctor for murder because he died after his throat was cut. <laughs> yeah, slit his throat. You slit his throat. Okay. How many people misconstrue and misunderstand what they see because of their immaturity, ignorance, indoctrination, lack of insight, or too narrow a view? I can tell you it happens all the time. You should see the emails that I get. That's <laughs> COVID all over the place. COVID is, is just the most recent iteration of that process. You're exactly right. Uh, rather than trying to understand what others are actually saying, 
people will jump to conclusions and assume um, uh, conclusions that are really not being stated. In our world today, those who want to manipulate others for their own purpose, for their own power, for their own agenda, utilize this weakness of jumping to conclusions all the time. This is how propaganda works. People will hear allegations and accusations and reports and pieces of data and are led to certain conclusions without ever investigating actual evidence and are rallied to causes they might never support had all the evidences been in. I see this happen. This is how politics works, folks. For instance, in the aftermath of the most recent presidential election, there's been allegations of fraud. Texas filed a lawsuit with the Supreme Court regarding the uh, uh, changes in the way the election was conducted in Pennsylvania, alleging it was unconstitutional because those changes were not done through the Pennsylvania legislature, which the Constitution requires. The Supreme Court rejected the lawsuit based on lack of standing. Texas didn't have legal standing to bring the suit of how another state internally handles its election process. But when some in the news media reported this, their headlines were written to suggest another meaning. Headlines like, Supreme Court rejects Texas fraud claim. This meant, uh, well, they did, that's not a false statement. It's a wording that leads to a conclusion. They did reject the fraud claim. Now, they made a claim that fraud, and they reject the case, basically, or fraud case. Um, And many people read that and go, oh, the Supreme Court found there was no fraud. That was not the case at all. In fact, as far as I know, there hasn't been one court in every court ruling. As far as I know, if you know one, let me know. But as far as I know, there has been one court that has actually had an evidentiary hearing. An evidentiary hearing is when they allow evidence of fraud to be introduced or presented. No court has had a case like that. They've all ruled on standing or or policy or procedure so that but yet the but but yet so i don't know whether fraud happened or not but i know that if you are a member of the kingdom of god the kingdom of god is the kingdom of truth and the kingdom of truth fears nothing by evidence and truth the kingdom of truth is open this is what jesus said i taught nothing in secret i did everything in open this is why god has conducted the great controversy the way he's conducted it satan is the kingdom of secrets satan is the king because he's the king of liars he's the father of lies and lies will always be destroyed if you open up a society to the light of truth that's why communist countries will never have a free press and will never have openness because their whole system is based on fraud and distortion and so i don't know whether fraud happened or not but i know the methods being employed are the methods of manipulating society and obstructing an investigation to have evidence presented to see that bothers me and what bothers me more though are there's so many millions i don't know millions i haven't talked to millions but so many people that i get emails and stuff from that are are Christians who love God and don't see how they're being manipulated. They seem to have no discernment, whatever. It's very sad. God's kingdom is the kingdom of truth, love, freedom. Truth does not fear inquiry. It loses nothing by investigation. Only those who stand in falsehood fear investigation and inquiry. I wanted to talk a little about Ahaz today, but we're kind of out of time. Should I take a minute or two? 
So in the first paragraph in Sunday, in Monday's lesson, we're jumping to Monday, it says Ahaz was weighing the political options. Uh, and, and bottom line, God... Um, in, says God allowed trouble to come upon Ahaz in the way of disciplining him to bring us back to his senses, is what the lesson says, the trouble to come, the threat from the other nations. What do you think about this idea that God allows trouble to come as a way of disciplining? What does God want for each of us? He wants victory over sin in our lives. He wants new hearts and right spirits. Can God get victory in any heart and mind of, of, an, of a human being without their participation? No. Because while God has the power to override you and write in anything he wants, the moment he does, your individuality is erased. It's not you anymore. It's some other thing that God created, puppet or otherwise. So the only way to retain your unique personhood and save you is by your willful, cooperative, purposeful participation with God. So God will bring us to places where we must choose over and over again. He will bring people over the same ground where they will have to choose until they get the victory or until they reject God to the point they destroy the faculties within them that respond to the Spirit of God. They're beyond reach at that point. Love and truth has no impact. So over and over again, he brings us to that same place until we either choose yes and are victorious or reject to the point that we can't hear or respond to the spirit of love and truth. One of the founders of the Adventist Church wrote in Heavenly Sanctuary, page 137, There are those here upon whom great light in warnings and reproof have shown. Whether reproofs are given, the enemy seeks to create in those reproved as a desire for human sympathy. Think that through. I've been reproved. Please feel sorry for me. Therefore, I would warn you to beware lest in appealing to the sympathy of others and going back over your past trials, you again err on the same points in seeking to build yourself up. The Lord brings his erring children over the same ground again and again. But if they continually fail to heed the the admonitions of his spirit, if they fail to reform on every point where they have erred, he will finally leave them to their own weakness. Because he doesn't take freedom. This is not some arbitrary thing. Here's another one, 4 Testimony 86. God's work of refining and purifying must go on until his servants are so humbled, so dead to self, that when called to active service, their eye will be single to his glory. God brings men over the ground again and again, increasing the pressure until perfect humility and transformation of character bring them into harmony with Christ and the Spirit of Heaven. And they are victors over themselves. Isn't that a great quote? Four Testimony, page 86. So we're not going to talk about the child today of the young woman, Mahershala Hashbaz, longest name in the Bible. And then the lesson goes and, and, and has us read, and was this child that was promised to Ahaz as a sign, was this Mahershala Hashbaz, the son of Isaiah, or was this Jesus? And there's lots of argument, theological textbooks written back and forth. You'll find in there, uh, uh, you'll find the promise, ask for a sign. He wouldn't ask for a sign. So the prophet says that God will give you a sign. A child will be born before he's old enough to, to know his left from his right or tell right from wrong. The armies around the city will be gone. And then, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. And so 
there's debate. Well, it can't be uh, Mahershala Hashbaz because it's manual. Manual's Jesus. Well, it can't be a manual because um, how, how would that help Ahaz to know the, the, the promise that when Emmanuel's when born, the army around the city will be gone? That's not going to help. It's not 400 years down the road. How's that going to help me with this army right now? Well, the prophecy is one of those duels. It's both. That's why the woman in the, in the Hebrew is the word that can be young, mean young woman or it can mean virgin. It can mean either one. Because there were two, there were two in one prophecy. There's a child that's going to be born, and Ahaz, you're going to see that child. And before that child's old enough to uh, know right from wrong, these armies around your city have been gone. And before Mahershala Hashbaz was old enough to know, the ch- armies were gone. God delivered him. But there's going to be another child that's going to be born, and his name's going to be Emmanuel, God with us. And that child's also referenced not just in Isaiah 7, but in Isaiah 9. And upon, you know, for unto us child is born, his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. And the government should be on his shoulder. That child is Emmanuel. So there's two. This prophecy is very simple. Prophecy is uh, two children that's going to be born. And then the New Testament writers let us know that that second child will be born to a virgin. It was a special child. It was God with us, Emmanuel. So a lot more in the lesson. I encourage you to go get our notes. You're going to see what's in the rest of the lesson. And let's close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are an incredible God who have made us in your image with the ability to, to procreate children in our image. And, and sometimes we haven't always understood the seriousness of that. But as you've given us enlightenment, we, we want to use our abilities to glorify you. And we want to live in harmony with your methods and principles. And we ask for your wisdom and transforming of our hearts and minds and characters and the uplifting of your kingdom. And at this end time in human history, enable us to take this message to the world that others can begin having discernment and break away from these kingdoms of the world and not be held captive by fear. And that we, no matter what trials come upon us, no matter how the world falls apart, that we can have the resilience of holding and clinging on to you and knowing you as our personal Savior, so that like Job, that we can be perfect and righteous in all of our ways. And there'll be many on the earth just like us because we're like you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.